Hey everybody, it's Bax and welcome back to Baxi's Musical Podcast. I hope you're in the mood for an amazing story about a guy whose career will blow you away. My guest tonight is Steve Conti. Now get a load of this. When the New York Dolls broke up in 1976, after years of horrible luck, drug addiction, tragedies, and terrible management, most people assumed that would be the end of that. That was until 2004 when Morrissey of the Smiths was able to convince the surviving members of the band to reunite and perform for the first time in 28 years. That was 12 years after the death of drummer Jerry Nolan, 13 years after the death of guitar player Johnny Thunders, and yet somehow Morrissey was able to convince David Johansson, Syl Sylvain, and the ailing Arthur Killer Kane to get back together. But to do that, David Johansson insists that he handpick the other musicians, and one of them happened to be singer, songwriter, and guitar player Steve Conti. Steve would play with the New York Dolls for the next six years, longer than the original lineup existed back in the early 70s. Steve Conti's career would take him through a number of absolutely incredible freaking moments, playing with Chuck Berry, Paul Simon, Peter Wolf, Billy Squire, and then also the Michael Monroe Band. But he's also released a number of fantastic solo records that have been released on Wicker Good Records, the label owned by Little Steven Van Zandt from the E Street Band. This includes his 2021 solo record, The Incredible Bronx Cheer, which brings me to why I wanted to talk to Steve Conti. Steve is currently working on a brand new solo record in which he has recorded five songs that he co-wrote with Andy Partridge of XTC. It was at that point where I said, I must find me some Steve Conti and I must speak to him immediately. And so I have. This is my conversation with the insanely talented Steve Conti on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey. Hey, Steve. How are you? All right, man. I'm so sorry about that. Oh, are you recording? Are you recording already? Yeah, we're ready to go. We're ready to go. Don't don't you worry about a thing. Are you All right, I, I want to get my apology off camera. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So your audience doesn't think I'm a flake. Don't you? I don't think you have to worry about it. I'm listen. I'm a, I'm as of today. I'm on vacation, so I'm here all day long. I got all the time for you in the world. Good to see oh, you. Good yeah, good to see you. Sorry again about that, but uh, yeah, I got no excuse <laughs> except that I have two kids. Hey, you know, I I got three kids. I know exactly what you're dealing with. You lose track of time. Shit happens. That's okay. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I, I, I really am. I've been listening to uh, to Bronx Cheer for a better part of about a week and a half now. Yeah. What a great record that is. I, I, it's, it's, I, I can totally see why Little Steven has you on his record label. It's like it's that kind of garagey, great, great rock record that I, I totally see him uh, enjoying the hell out of. Good. Well, that's where I'm at these days. Um, you know, I've made all kinds of records in my in my career, but uh, I've made like singer songwriter records, you know, Americana, garagey, trashy ones. And, you know, Andy Partridge really liked uh, Bronx Cheer, which is <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah, I know that's where we're going with this conversation, but um, it's got 
something that I think garage rock people like, but it's also got something for the uh, more attuned ear, shall we say, the more sophisticated ear. There's little secret stuff in there that you don't really notice, you know, <laughs> on first listen, but when you dig a little deeper, you'll, you'll find there's some uh, little complexities in there. Well, that's, that's definitely true, and I, and, I, and I do want to talk about the Andy thing because you know, I'm, a, I'm a huge Andy Partridge fan. But you know, the more I'm, I'm reading about your career and about what you've done, your whole career has been kind of dictated by a bunch of holy shit moments. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, everything from you know, Paul Simon and the Michael Monroe Band and the New York Dolls and then, and then this thing with, with, uh, with Andy Partridge, which you know, for, for people who don't know, you're, you're uh, putting together your next solo record and you've written eight songs with Andy, five of which are, are being recorded. Tell me how you connected with him and how this even began, because he's usually very selective in who he chooses to collaborate with. He doesn't do it a lot, and when he does, it does it because it's something really interesting or special to him. So tell me how this how this begins. Dude, I pinch myself all the time. I go, why, why, why would he want to write with me? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I'm not uh, disparaging myself too much, but you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I've heard his collaborations. I mean, he writes with some great people, Robin Hitchcock, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who else? Uh, this guy, Mike Keneally, who was in Zappa's band, you know, uh, so he certainly doesn't have to, and he doesn't have to do it to like, you know, I'm not his friend. He's doing me a favor or anything. He must really like something about me. So I'll just, I'll take that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, I've, yeah. I've talked to Robin Hitchcock and Keneally and Thomas Walsh of Pug Wash, another guy he's written a couple of songs with. Right. And I've, yeah. even, I've even talked to, to Colin Molding and, uh, and Dave Gregory and to Andy. So uh, I've, I've kind of covered all the bases <laughs> with, with this band. But one of the things that seems to come out, especially with people who have worked with him closely, is that, you know, to work with him, and to observe how he creates music. I mean, the, he's, you're dealing with like a different kind of genius there. There's something going on with him. So, you know, like you said, if, if, if he sees something in your talent, it speaks volumes about the talent you have. So, I mean, I, I just can't even imagine what it's like to sit there across from him, even if it's on a Zoom call, and create with this guy. Dude, it's um, it's unbelievable. You know, I mean, for me, first of all, since 1982, when I first heard English Settlement, I've been XTC junkie. You know? Yeah, every B-side, every record, every you know, um, and yeah, I heard Melt the Guns on my college radio. You know, Matt Pinfield. I do. So Matt Pinfield was a DJ at my college radio. He went, <laughs> went to Rutgers University in New Brunswick where I was going. And uh, I had given Matt um, my first demo to play on the radio. And like he spun my first, you know, record, my first, you know, recorded um, whatever. That was demo tapes, basically. Um, and I saw that I'd, be, I'd listen to the, his station, all, his show all the time to see if he'd play my song again, right? Right. But then one he played that, eh, 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 and I was like, what's this? And I'd heard XTC before, like, my college uh, buddies would blast 
like Guns and Wire, uh, Drums and Wires, and um, Black Sea, you know, coming out of the dorm rooms, and and I didn't get it yet. Yeah. When I heard Melt the Guns, it was like I heard that sophistication. I heard the weird chords. I, you know, some of the stuff got lost in the in the big noisy tracks. But of course, I went back and I learned to love everything after that. And um, yeah, so that was once I got English Settlement, and you know, to me, it was like finding a new Beatles, you know, it had all the all the different vibes and styles, you know, it was rock and roll, and then it was, you know, weirdness, and then it was ballads, and you know, and they all existed on the same record. And that's like, you know, the White Album for me, it's like, why can't every band have an album like that in their career? And And I, you know, (laughs) I'm always trying to make all my records like that, which is a marketing nightmare. But, um, you know, I I grew up with Revolver being my favorite record. So, you know, it was it was never a stretch to have a string quartet and, you know, a weird ass backwards tape loop, you know, uh, Book of the Dead prayer, you know, on the same record, you know. So, uh, yeah, so anyway, you know, I went down the the next decades, just loving XTC and getting all the records, of course, and you know, uh, writing songs that, along with, you know, influenced by Beatles and uh, Stones and Kinks and whatever, you know, there was some XTC influence in my stuff. And um, Andy had heard. Oh, so fast. This is the '80s, right? So fast forward to like 2000, early 2000s. Uh, a, my guitar repairman, it's got Dennis Fano, who uh, built the guitars called Fano Guitars. Yep. Now he sold the company. He's got a new company called Novo. Uh, he was building Andy basically a copy of his daughter's little uh, nylon string that he used um, to write all, all his stuff with. And so Dennis was building Andy a guitar. And when I found that, I went, you're you're working with Andy Partridge? Are you kidding me? And my brother and I had just done a record uh, called The Contis, Bleed Together, and it was pretty uh, eclectic and weird. There was some weird stuff on it, and you know, beautiful ballads. It was you know not unlike you know a, a White Album or English Settlement, you know, to me, in my mind anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I said, would you please pass this record along to Andy? And uh, I don't believe we actually communicated but I heard through Dennis and Andy liked the record and I guess he was just getting his label started he didn't uh, years later he told me um, you know it was, it was a great record but I didn't have my label together yet blah 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 um, and then you know years went by I may have uh, I don't know if I somehow I think I didn't get in touch with him again until um, I realized he was on Twitter and I became friends with Steve Lillywhite, the producer. The producer, yeah. Bars and uh, Black Sea. And we had met at a party and we became really close friends and we would hang out all the time. And so one day he and I are chatting on uh, Twitter, bantering back and forth. And we somehow rope Andy into this conversation. And I'm like, uh, we're, we start talking to us. And then it comes out that I was in the New York Dolls and Andy was like, what you're in the New York Dolls? This is the same Steve Conti that you know did that record that I liked back then. And he's like, "Oh my God, I wanted to be a New York Doll." He says, "I even wrote David Johansson a letter. 
I was gonna change my name and you know my image and everything. And uh, and so once he learned that I was in the dolls, I think there was a whole new level of respect. And then um, we chatted a bit back and forth, and then it somehow came out that I was gonna be touring with Michael Monroe with Alice Cooper, and we were, we were gonna play in Swindon. So where Andy's from, right? And so uh, he writes. I hear you're going to be in my shithole town. <laughs> um, I'll take you to lunch. And I was like, what? Like immediate screenshot, you know, that like Andy Partridge is offering to take me to lunch. Okay. Pinch me, right? <laughs> but I tell you, you know, that day he came and picked me up. We did the soundtrack. He came to the parking lot of the arena in Swindon. It was called the Oasis. I think where Oasis got their band name from, actually. Um, Picked me up there. We went uh, back to his um, engineer, Stu Rose uh, place in a shed where they did all their projects together. And, um, you know, we hung out all day, played guitars. We never played guitars together, but we passed the guitar between us. It was like, I was like, oh, show me Scarecrow people. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, then, and I would do a lick and go, oh, show me that lick, you know. And, watch YouTube videos, cry. It was just like hanging out with an old friend. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, it's really <laughs> weird because, you know, to me, my top five songwriters are, you know, Lennon McCartney and teams, Lennon McCartney, Jagger Richards, Pete Townsend, Paul Westerberg, Andy Partridge. Yeah. It's funny. It, when I interviewed him, he had just come off a, a pretty lousy interview with the, with the Rolling Stone magazine. He wasn't happy with it at all. And the guy was just, you know, ready to talk and ready to, to, to unload. And I, and I, and I finished the interview with the guy and I've never done, you know, in 30 years of interviewing people, I've never, I've never done this. I, I finished the interview and I just sat there and didn't move for like five minutes and just said, did I just do what I just thought I did? <laughs> did I just talk to that guy? And, you know, he really opened up and it was like, man, that was just it was just a, just a phenomenal experience. And I w would imagine that as a songwriter to be in that position with him just had to be a massive thrill in a, in a career of massive thrills. Well, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, this is in my top five career <laughs> moments, you know, it's like playing with Chuck Berry is still number one. Yeah. I want to ask, I want to ask you about that a little bit. I got, I got to play a whole evening with Chuck Berry. It was incredible. Wow. I'll tell you about that later. But <laughs> between that and the, you know, all the hoopla around being in the New York Dolls, the the first, you know, reformed gig at the Royal Festival Hall, where, you know, just tons of, you know, Mick Jones and, and Chrissy Hind and everyone was backstage there, like going, you know, you were great. You took over for the Thunders. I was like, okay, I, I don't know what I did. Because yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really good. Tony Thunder's fan, but uh, I guess people like what I did. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, between those two things and, and uh, you know, getting my first record deal with a major label and, you know, um, it, it's right up there. It's yeah. top it's top five. Now, moments of with, with this new record, and like I said, like we said, there's, there's five songs that are going to be recorded on this new thing. Prairie Prince is helping you from, from the tubes. He's got, he had a longstanding uh, history with uh, Todd Rundgren. Who yep. I know Andy loves that guy, but uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when when do you expect this thing to be completed? Is this something that's going to come out, you know, early next year, or what's the what's probably the time? Probably not frame? early. Probably not early next year, but hopefully by the summer, because I have uh, 
I end up writing summer songs. I don't know why. And uh, there's, <laughs> or I end up putting them on records. And uh, this one's no different. Yeah. I had two summer songs on the last record. Um, so there's a summer song that I hope is going to be my summer single. I mean, when I approached um, Andy, that's how I approached it. Uh, I'll circle back to how we got to, to working on this. Um, so anyway, hopefully it's going to, um, we cut the tracks with Prairie. Uh, last week, my brother and I, my brother on bass, yep. and really connected as a power trio. It was, it was, he was so great to work with, Perry, and, um, you know, just immediate, you know, like friends, you know, That's like we'd known each other for like forever. I mean, it was that way when I talked to him on the phone the first time. So, um, and I knew he was the guy to, you know, I mean, first of all, when I first heard Earn Enough for Us, I rewound, me and my brother sat in the car, as is like, cassette came out in like 1986 or whatever it was. We sat there in the car, we, we rewound that tape 12 times and listened to that song 12 times yep. in a row. One of my favorites. The greatest thing I've ever heard, you know, besides lyrics, the melodies, the production, <laughs> you know, the little guitar parts, Prairie's drumming and the drum sound is phenomenal. And when he said, I have the earn enough for us snare drum and I'm bringing it to New York. <laughs> uh, I flew him to New York. Um, so you know, he lives in San Francisco. So it was either I go out there or get him here. It was easier to get him here and play with my brother and me and record in little Steven's studio where I can get some good you know, deals. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so uh, we, we recorded five of the, of the eight songs. Um, Really, the other three, uh, two of them aren't really finished, and the th third of that group just didn't kind of fit in the end. Yeah. Uh, but it'll wind up somewhere. I'm just, like I told Andy, there's no way I'm going to write a song with Andy Partridge that's never going to come out. So, <laughs> so let me circle around to how I got. So, so we started. So. After, uh, so that day, Andy picks me up in the parking lot, right? We, we go, we do the, the hang all day. It's brilliant, beautiful. I go back, I play my show with Michael Monroe. Um, and then Alice Cooper calls me up on stage and I play Schools Out with Alice Cooper. So it was like one oh of the greatest. God, that's great. Right? That's great. So, and then, you know, years go by, this is 2015. So, you know, seven years go by. And, you know, I'd send Andy my, um, uh, Bronx Cheer record, which he gave me great reviews for. And I'm sure that had something to do with it. You know, he knew what I was capable of. So when I approached him and I said, you know, earlier this year, I said, um, God, I'd love, to... I started listening to these interviews that Andy had done about his failed songwriting career you know, <laughs> compilation, right? And I thought, how could these people write songs with Andy Partridge and then not release them, you know, the nerves, <laughs> you know, I know, I know. Uh, so I, I, I approached him and I said, Andy, I said, how would you, in an email, I said, how would you like to um, write my next single with me for Wicked Cool Records? And he's like, well, Steve, you know, I sort of swore off writing with other people, but it's not a no. And I went, well, <laughs> that's hopeful. Okay. <laughs> so I, I let him sit. I let it sit for a month, and uh, I actually I came up with this track, and I thought this would be a good one for him to write with me. And I sent him 
a track and I said, hey, have you done any more thinking about, you know, writing? And I said, here's a track that I'm working on. And uh, I thought it was something he could really sink his teeth into. It was kind of XTC-ish. And um, he wrote back, he said, um, uh, I can't really do anything with this. Um, it's too far along already. So he goes, let's just start, start something from scratch. He goes, shall we do a Zoom? And I was like, <laughs> so, you know, I'm always very respectful. You know, I, I don't want to overstep and, and like, sure. you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of, of him and his time. And, you know, so I didn't want to push anything too hard. So when he suggested the Zoom, I was like, yes, absolutely. And because um, I thought maybe we'd I'd send him something that he'd send and we'd just email. So um, so we did a two hour Zoom. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. and like within the first 10 minutes i went oh shit i guess i should start recording this right and he's like oh no he actually said to me you know you should be recording this in case you forget and i said oh would you be okay with that and so you know so i'm recording the whole thing unfortunately i didn't know how to do the split screen so i have two hours of andy partridge's face which is perfect i don't need my face <laughs> so so you know i went through that two hour zoom after we got done and you know, I brought him, I brought in one idea, he brought in one idea, and then we came up with two on the spot. Amazing. And, uh, yeah. And then um, we spent the next six months, uh, I took them away and I did like demos with them and I'd send him the track and he'd go, well, this part could be better. We need to change that lyric or you need a better melody here or a better bass line. Or, you know, it was a real collaborative thing. He's almost like producing the demos with me, which I'm going to give him some credit for that on the album. Um, and then, so I played the songs for little Steven and um, I didn't, you know, it's hard to read him sometimes because <laughs> uh, I also, you know, didn't have a conversation. It was through an email, you know, I'd sent him the tracks and he was like, yeah, you know, uh, this one song is cool, a great solo. And, and I was like, okay, I, I didn't know that, he was hearing them as any anything that could be a single right so next time i talked to andy i said yeah i said i played the songs for steven he was asking how, what does van zandt think i said um yeah you know he liked it i said i'm not sure it's maybe it's not garage you know maybe it's too smart or too slick or weird or something you know i rarely hear xtc on underground garage so i thought you know <laughs> i said uh you know, maybe we need to put on your Dukes of the Stratosphere hat and, you know, let's write some real 60s garage band stuff. And he's like, you want to, you want to do another Zoom? I said, yes, of course. <laughs> you know, so Andy invited me to do another Zoom and we did another like uh, two hour, you know, couple of 40 minute Zooms. And we came up with four more songs. That's great. Two of which, two of which uh, were recorded. So I recorded three from the first batch and two from this new batch. So, well, I, I, that's, like a whole, that's like a whole side of a record. So <laughs> I'm I'm already like thinking about how to uh, sequence this record, and I think um, uh, don't hold me to it, but I think side one it could open with you know all five Partridge Conti tunes. And by the way, Andy insists that I put my name first. I'm like, really? Uh, he's like, yeah, it just flows better. He just partridge it sort of stops you know it stops <laughs> slow you know 
Partridge Conti. Just put Conti Partridge. Uh, wow. Okay. So uh, yeah, I think the first five songs on the record could be the um, the, the Conti Partridge, the the cartridge. The songs. cartridge. <laughs> well, I, I I can't wait to hear it. I really can't. You know, it, it it's funny that uh, you you and I connected uh, late last week. I literally just uh, finished watching that uh, that Arthur Kane documentary that came out that uh, that New York Doll. Uh, I've probably seen it like three or four times because I just think it's just you know so cool to see how you know Arthur in his in his final years finally gets to do what he had been dreaming of doing forever, and that's to get the the New York Dolls back in in, uh, in two thousand four. How did you get involved uh, in in that reunion when they just finally decide when you know when when Johansson and 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 Sylvain and and uh, and and Arthur finally decided to get back together? How how was your name approached in that? Well, I think it was only Johansson that had to agree to do it because, you know, those guys would have done it years ago, you know, Sil and Arthur. That was their whole life. You know, David had his solo careers. He had his acting. He had his the Buster Poindexter thing. Yeah. He had his Harry Smith's the acoustic blues thing. So um, David had just started, you know, he was like playing around New York for years and, and he, you know, knew a bunch of great musicians. He was in a band with Levon Helm and Hubert Sumlin from Alan Wolf and Jimmy Vivino. And, and he asked Jimmy, you know, the guitar player in the Conan band, right with Max. Um, he asked him, who should I call? And, and Jimmy, both Jimmy and Larry Saltzman, the guitar player in the Harry Smiths, um, both said to him, I got the guy for you. Don't call anyone else. Conti's the guy. He's got the right look, the right guitars, the right attitude. And so David called me and, um, you know, just based on recommendations from respected musicians in New York City. And uh, we got together for lunch and uh, sat down uh, over a, a half a cantaloupe. And, um, <laughs> and then at the end, you know, we were just talking about all kinds of stuff. And at the end, you know, we didn't play a note of music. At the end, he just handed me an envelope, a manila envelope. He's like, I took uh, the liberty of making you these charts and, and tunes. You want to do this gig? And I was like, okay. And that was it. <laughs> Never rehearsed. And, and we walked, and I walked into the first rehearsal and David wasn't there. It was Syl and Arthur. And they met the new guy in their band, which was probably kind of weird for them. Right. David picked me and he picked the drummer and he picked the piano player. Um, and I guess that's how it had to be in order for David to do this, he had to pick his guys because he he had been used to like playing with great musicians in New York City for whatever, 30 years. And um, he wasn't sure how Syl and Arthur were going to perform. I mean, they were great in the end, but he had no idea. So he had his like musical director kind of piano player there just to you know crack the whip if, if he had to. But um, everybody did great. And the second day, David came in, and we put it all together, and then we went over to England and did those shows. It was uh, another, you know, pinch me moment. Yeah. Well, you know, that, I mean, that's a the, the the whole story of that band is like, uh, it's it's an amazing story. It's tragic. It's sad. It's like you 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 wonder what would have happened if they had you know been a little bit healthier, <laughs> if they had been uh, not so mismanaged towards the end. It just a uh, to see those guys, you know, play, and to know what that first album, you know, meant to people. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, Andy's 
uh, you know, love of that album. I mean, you know, Morrissey put that that show together. You know, Arthur comes back. It's like there's a lot of real feel good moments about the idea that suddenly the New York Dolls are back and they sound freaking fantastic. And and I mean, that had to be really pretty powerful for especially for those guys to come back yeah. after all that time and play. Yeah, and um, you know, like like David said once, you know. You, you can only be an amateur once, you know, so, but, but he was saying that in regards to like, you know, the band sounding better than ever, you know, these days, because, you know, he pulled some ringers in like myself and the drummer and, um, you know, we made, and ultimately uh, Sammy, when Sammy came in, um, but, uh, you know, we, we made the, we energized the band and gave it that, you know, millennium, uh, sheen i guess yeah. you know it's like guys you know because when the dolls had made their first record nobody had ever made a record before in that band you know it was their first album ever and now everyone had made so many records by that point david had made solo records Syl had made solo records arthur had made solo records you know i had made records we all did so when you get together with guys who've been recording for 20 years 30 years it's going to be better than well, you know better it's not going to have the vibe of you know, that original first dolls album is like you can't match that vibe yeah I mean, that, that's a moment in time and and substances and everything else <laughs> and, you know what was gone the stories i hear and you know when we did the record with todd rundgren of course i heard all the stories about those sessions you know todd was like well you know some guys were on you know up drugs and some guys were on down drugs and we had to like you know find when they were like balanced in the middle and then we'd re hit record you know? <laughs> <laughs> just one guy was coming down and one guy was coming up we mm, you know okay press record <laughs> you uh so, you you mentioned that uh, the number one thrill of all of these things that have happened to you was the uh, was the chuck berry uh moment tell me a, a, about that that had to be unbelievable too well yeah i and that kind of goes into the the dolls thing is you know People say, how could you take Johnny Thunder's play? I didn't take his place. I, you know, uh, well, he's not around. So, he's, you not, know, he's not available. I, I, uh, I sat in for him, whatever, however you want to say it, you know. There was no replacing him, but uh, I did the guitar. I, I played the part of the guitar player, you know. Um, but I figured, you know, I never listened to Thunders, but when I heard him, when I started studying those records, because I never, I had too much too soon, but I didn't have the first album, mm -hmm. and I never listened to them when I was growing up um, much. Um, but I heard Thunders, and I was like, he just loves Chuck Berry, and he loves Keith Richards, you know, and so do I. So to me, that was my, that was the connecting, the connective tissue <laughs> to, uh, was uh, Chuck Berry and, and Keith Richards, and I figured. You know, if I if I approach it with that head and turn the amp up all the way, that's thunders. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, so, it's 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 funny you say that because I was like, uh, I, I've always loved the uh, the Heartbreakers album, LAMF, and I always said that that uh, the Heartbreakers are like w what the Rolling Stones would be if the Rolling Stones had unsolvable drug problems. <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and it's and it's true. He he did sound an awful lot like like uh, like Keith Richards at that you know back then. Yeah, so um, 
you know, between those two players, you know, that, that kind of got me in the Thunder's head, um, my version of it, you know. And um, so the first guitar player, you know, the first solo I ever learned was Johnny B. Good when I was 13. I've been taking lessons out of the books, you know, like reading the little notes and it's fucking boring as hell. And um, one day uh, somebody showed me the pentatonic scale and I, and a little bit of Johnny B. Good solo and I went to town, man. And I just taught myself those kind of licks all over the neck. And, you know, I was just that kind of kid. I would teach myself. I would learn something and then I'd just go put it through every permutation, every fret, every string, every key, you know. And um, so, you know, knowing that Chuck Berry was my, you know, first influence and my first solo, um, when I got this call to like play with Chuck, I was like, this is like too crazy, man. It was kind of the first really big thing that happened to me. I had been on the road a little bit with uh, Band called Blood, Sweat, and Tears, who you might remember. Mm -hmm. That was like my first road gig, but I hadn't had a record deal yet for my own music. I hadn't, you know, I was I had a blues band. We were playing in New York every night, every week, and having great people come and sit in with us. But this was different. Playing with Chuck Berry, so the uh, promoter at the Meadowlands where he was going to play this concert. Um, knew my mom who's a jazz singer this guy was a trumpet player and he put the band together he he told chuck uh he picked chuck up in the airport and he said chuck says who's my band tonight chuck says oh chuck you're gonna love it. it's a great band it's the conti brothers john on bass and steve on guitar he said guitar i don't use no other guitar player <laughs> and uh <laughs> and the promoter says no chuck steve's great man don't worry He'll lay way back you know if you need him to and, Chuck says, I'm going to give him one song. If he ain't happening, I'm going to throw him off the stage. So uh, I was told this right before we went on, you know, no pressure. And, uh, you know, Chuck comes backstage and, um, you know, we all knew the records, of course. And, and you know, he gave us some instructions. You know, he said, uh, you know, drummer, watch my foot. You know, bass player, watch my neck. If I do something, it means that's how I want you to play. And he says, and listen to the lyrics. If it wasn't for the lyrics, we'd be playing the same song all night long. <laughs> <laughs> and so we get out there and I'm like laying way back because I'm not going to get thrown off the stage with Chuck Berry, you know. I waited too long for this moment. <laughs> so we play a bunch of, you know, the hits, whatever, Sweet Little Sixteen and Memphis and O'Carroll. And, and then he does a slow blues. He does It Hurts Me Too. And comes to the you know, it gets to the end when things go wrong, go wrong with you. It hurts me too. Points to me. Take a solo. I'm like, oh, not only did he not throw me off the stage, he's giving me a solo. I play his blues solo. And he says to the audience, the man can play. Can the man play? Take another one. Gives me another solo. Wow. Then we go and we play a bunch more Chuck songs and then we do another slow blues, same thing. Gives me a solo. Can the man play? Take another one. I'm like, man, this is like, this is too cool, you know. Uh, and then the next song he calls is Johnny Be Good, and he plays the opening riff. He goes ba da da ba. Right when he plays that first, very first lick, when he goes uh, he goes pop. His high E string pops right off. 
And I'm like, you really need that string to play that middle solo that's coming up. Right. I'm always thinking ahead to the, to the middle. I'm like, what is going to happen when it comes to the middle solo? And he goes, Johnny be good. Points to me. <laughs> I'm like, first solo I ever learned in my life, playing it with the man who who wrote it. Wow. Wrote it, who created this guitar style, who invented guitar rock and roll pretty much. Pinch me again, you know. So that's great. Yeah. So uh, after uh, after you leave the Dolls, you uh, you get involved with the, the Michael Monroe band, and and I and I just read that there's a, there's a that someone's going to finally do a documentary about his life called "The Best Kept Secret in Rock and Roll," and he really is kind of one of those guys that you know some people may know, but they may not really know uh, what Michael Monroe is all about. Tell me about what that experience has been like. I mean, you've been with him for, I think it's like, what, a, a dozen years or so? 12 years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, aren't we all the best kept secrets in rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> anyone anyone who's not a household name has been out there slunging it out and, you know, performing and writing songs and making records this long, you know, got to be some kind of secret. Um so yeah, I, I mean that was a kind of a no-brainer move over from the Dolls because Sammy was, uh, of course, Sammy Yaffa was in the Dolls um, after Arthur died, um, and he was originally in Hanoi Rocks with Michael. Yep. So he had started. Um, we played the Dolls played in in Finland in Michael's hometown of Turku um, in 2009. Michael came up and played sax with us on Personality Crisis, and uh, I met him that night. And he lived in New York when I first moved to New York, but we never met back then. Like I, I never crossed paths with Thunders or Michael or Sammy or even Sylvain back then. I don't know. We were all going to the same clubs and playing the same venues, so it's kind of weird that we never crossed paths. But um, so. Um, I guess they started formulating a plan to like make some new music together, the two of them. And um, the doll's work was slowing down a bit. And um, Sammy said, hey, you want to do some gigs with Michael? And I was like, sure, I can do both. So uh, I started playing with Michael and with, with the dolls at the same time. And then um, it turned out that uh, we, we wrote some songs and we were all scheduled to go in and start making a record with Jack Douglas. And then the dolls manager called and said, Hey, we're going to go make a new record. And I said, Oh, really? With what songs? Because we, up till then, the two dolls records we'd done, we had all written together. Right. And I didn't hear anything about, you know, we're going to start writing or anything. All of a sudden we're going to record a new record. And, uh, I guess it was, Sorry, it was songs that David and Syl had written, um, and um, which was fine. But the problem was the date of the Dolls album recording was the exact same date as the Michael recording. <laughs> and we were we were set up to record September 10th in Los Angeles with Jack Douglas, and they were set up to record September 10th in Blackpool, England, with uh, some other producer. And I was like, I, I can't do it. You know, can we reschedule? No. Okay, so that was that. That you was know, that. Uh, yeah, they got uh, they got whoever uh, Frank and Fonte from Blondie played, and uh, the producers, the bass players, Jason Hill from Louis Fourteenth, 
he played bass and um and i just kind of moved over to michael and been there ever since you know i don't have a job so this is my job i've always had like some kind of day job you know like with music right but, uh, you know back in the 90s it was like doing session work and in, in 80s 90s it was uh doing session work in new york city and then in the 2000s going out on the road you know i toured with billy squire and willie deville and you know, paul simon with paul simon that was another pinch me moment uh, i bet i i i bet it was tell me about that a little bit um yeah so i i had played uh my brother and i had this band crown jewels and we made uh a record called linoleum it was very uh you know in typical style all over the place but kind of a singer more of a singer songwriter but there was some like nice rocking moments on it but uh, there's one song that has a, a a viola or cello rather on it and um this guy mark stewart a friend of ours from new york he started working with paul simon and for some reason he thought i would be good because i sang really soft on that song i wasn't like my usual belted out rock voice and for some reason he heard that and he thought hey you know paul wants a singer to sing for him during rehearsals when he doesn't feel like singing or when he can't sing wants to take a rest or whatever so he recommended me and um i went down there and um i don't remember if i just got the gig i think i just got the gig i didn't think there was an audition or anything <laughs> and uh and uh, like they sent me you know the paul simon sound book all the cds all the solo records, all the sheet music, books, you know, and I just walked in there with, um, you know, I had my music stand, my mic stand, the Paul Simon, you know, songbook, and, you know, I had just had to be at the ready, and some, some days we, we'd do like 10-hour rehearsal days, and some days uh, it was with his great, you know, 12-piece, 15-piece band with the African guys, you know, the EDM bass, and yeah. Uh, Steve Gadd on drums. Oh my gosh! Wow. Uh, you know, um, yeah, uh, horns and everything. It was amazing. And um, you know, whenever he didn't want to sing, or he'd go like, uh, "Steve, I got an interview. Um, bridge over trouble water. You take it." <laughs> <laughs> you know. Okay, I'll I'll take the song that's most difficult to sing. Sure, that's that's no yeah, problem. Yeah. yeah. yeah wow. Mrs. Robinson, or you know, like songs I grew up with. You know, I mean, these are the songs. Before the Beatles, or no, not before the Beatles, around the time, yeah, it was for me growing up in my house because my parents were jazz fans, really. We didn't have much pop music, so it was like what we heard on the radio and what, you know, friends of theirs would bring over. Their friends are the ones who brought over Revolver. My parents didn't have any Beatles records. Yeah. They had Fitzgerald and Miles Davis and, you know, Billie Holiday and Wes Montgomery. But um, so I think one of the first albums they bought was Simon and Garfunkel bookends. So, you know, I knew all those songs. And, and then so when Paul uh, uh, put together Simon and Garfunkel again, also a few years later, he called me for that. And whenever um, some days art didn't come to rehearsal, you know, till later, and me and Paul would do Scarborough Fair, like, you know, Simon and Conti. <laughs> <laughs> and then some days Paul wouldn't show up and it would be Conti and Garfunkel. Uh doing uh sounds of silence or something you know geez man unbelievable that's crazy you know you yeah. we, we started off talking about your uh your your songwriting 
career and you know what you did with your last record and and you know what you're doing now with with Andy. I, I, I uh, was listening to a podcast interview that you had done talking about uh, your own songwriting, and uh, one of the stories you told is that you started writing songs at a ridiculously early age, like ten. Uh, most people don't do that at at ten years old, but you know you always hear like you know you got to do the, the ten thousand hours before you really start you know understanding the craft of stuff. And even as you're saying like you know, your own writing and, and on on the uh, the last record, there's some sophisticated moments just in the writing uh, of those songs. Tell me about how you you kind of approach your own songwriting because I mean you're talking about you know, a, an incredible gift that you were able to kind of adapt as a child. That I mean, that's really, it's pretty extraordinary. Oh, well, you know, I, I never thought about it, really. It just... Because um, at 10 years old, I was uh, making fart jokes. I mean, that's that's what I was doing at 10 years old. Nobody told me I couldn't. So, <laughs> so you know, um, I mean, I was actually... So after I heard Revolver when I was six... I wanted to be Ringo. So I started taking drum lessons. Uh, excuse me, I have to open my window. It's really hot in here. Um, I started taking drum lessons uh, when I was seven. And I played drums up until, uh, and my brother was the guitar player. So my brother um, had a guitar, and, you know, I didn't even have a full kit. You know, I just had like a snare and a hi hat and. Uh, eventually, you know, I built the, the kid up piece by piece. Um, but one day, four years after I'd been playing drums, I picked up his guitar and I just like, I didn't have a pick. I just started like, this is the first song I ever wrote. Yeah. And playing it just like that with my fingernail. <laughs> and I, na, 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 na. I started singing these melodies along with like a single note and I was like man I can I can write songs I said I shouldn't be a drummer anymore I can't be stuck behind the drum kit I have to get out in front so you know then once I started playing guitar I started taking guitar lessons and I just like zoomed you know it was, I was a natural and then my brother said hey screw this I'm switching to bass <laughs> which isn't natural at bass so like we both found our instruments at a really young age and I just kept going I just kept writing and copying Beatles of course like writing psychedelic drug songs when I had never done a drug in my life you know but of course I was 10 I was writing like you know acid sounding you know acid trip songs and and you know some we made our first album in our family living room when I was like 10 or 11 and uh I got to tell you, you know, some of those songs really hold up. There was like a innocence and, you know, um, naivete, simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, but you can hear that it wasn't like Moon, June, Spoon, like crappy, like kid rhymes. Um, some of them were really good. In fact, one of, them, one of those songs ended up on the, that album, uh, Crown Jewels Linoleum, I was mentioning before, a song called Peace. Um, I, I put the actual recording from when I was 10 years old on that record. And <laughs> people find it on probably on YouTube or anywhere, Apple or Spotify. 
Um, so yeah, and then you know, then you you learn a bunch and you get worse because you know too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I and then and then I took you know I learned all the fancy chords and everything. I tried to use those in my writing, and I tried to use you know fancy riffs and. Eventually, I came all the way back around to the blues and Beatles, you know, after all the education and uh, just started trying to write simple songs again. And um, but, you know, I've, I'm always trying to stick in something a little weird, you know, a little that your average, you know, Johnny Ramone couldn't play, you know. Right. Uh, it's it's. <laughs> You play like the power chord stuff and, um, you know, and it's challenging to write a good song like that, for sure. You know, I'm not taking anything away from that simplicity, but I will take that as a, ba a basis and then fuck it up somehow later, you know, like <laughs> put, put some weird you know, notes in the chords or something. <laughs> well, it, it's uh, it's cool to have heard your your first song. I'm actually looking forward to seeing what the, what your next few songs are with Andy and and it's, it sounds really exciting. I can't wait to, to, to hear how those songs sound. I'm sure they're going to be unbelievable. Me too. Yeah. Um, they, the tracks are already sounding amazing with, with Prairie Prince. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, Steve, I, I, I appreciate you taking the time today. I know that we got kind of you know jacked up with, uh, with time, but it, it's, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I wish you all the, all the luck in the world. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Roxy. Take thanks. care. Thanks, everybody. If you want to find me online, steveconti.com and i'm on all the usual social medias your twitters your instagrams your facebooks your uh whatever yep. you know uh Bandcamp is where uh um little steven will release my next record you can find all my stuff there too as well and i have like signed copies that i that go from my Bandcamp, but the digital stuff goes from wicked cool records at steven's company so yeah find me we'll right do. back thanks steve appreciate right. it take care Again, the new record should be coming out later this year with all those songs co-written by freaking Andy Partridge. Be sure to check out Steve's uh, album, Bronx Cheer. It is a great record, too. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, like it, share it, tell all your friends about it. You can reach me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.